Welcome back, folks. It's Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show, on your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. We continue our look at things that are happening in Annapolis and some of the issues around criminal justice uh, that we face. And some of these issues we've been facing, at least on this radio program, uh, year after year after year for the last 24 years uh, around issues of life imprisonment uh, in our state of Maryland and what that means and how that could change in a numerous critical ways. Joining us once again is Walter Lomax, who is Executive Director of the Maryland Restorative Justice Initiative, a program of fusion partnerships. Good to have you in the house, Walter. Thanks for inviting us, Matt. And Sonia Kumar, who is Staff Attorney with the ACLU of Maryland. Good to see you, Sonia, as well. Nice to see you again. So um, let's just begin. So there's, there are a couple of issues here, but let's, let, let me begin with the life imprisonment issue and parole reform. And it's an issue that I know we've covered a, a lot over the years which has to do with who makes the decision on who gets paroled from life imprisonment and why it has become such a critical issue. We're talking about the, the lawsuit about around junior lifers, I mean juvenile lifers, excuse me, and the challenge to the parole system. So what is that about? So um, as anyone who's followed this issue is aware, Maryland's one of only three states in the country where in order to be um, released from a life sentence, the governor must personally approve parole, um, regardless of the fact that you're sentenced to a life with parole sentence. And um, and it's been now uh, almost a quarter of a century since um, uh, then-Governor Glenn Denning said life means life in Maryland. And since then, um, pretty much no one has been paroled. There have been a handful of people. I remember that really well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was at the height of, right, the the um, super predator fears and sort right. of a, 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 the wave of sort of um, ramping up our criminal justice system. Um, and so year after year, um, folks like Walter, and really Walter has been one of the leaders in this charge, have um, – uh, said, okay, you know, we we need to restore parole in Maryland. Um, and um, year after year, we our state has declined to do that. And so um, we've now reached a point where um, 23 years have passed since – 24 years have passed since that original statement was made. And still people who are, were serving life sentences at that time have not had an, a, a reasonable opportunity for release. And um, – uh, you know, and I think for years, folks have said in Maryland, we have turned life with parole sentences into life without parole sentences, despite what was intended at sentencing. And um, for those who were youth at the time of the crime, those were 17 or, or younger at the time that they committed the offense, um, there's sort of a new body of case law from the Supreme Court relating to how kids are different and essentially forbidding life without parole for kids except in the rarest of circumstances. Um, and so last year, um, uh, on behalf of MRJI in particular, it's um, Juvenile Lifer members and three individuals, We filed the ACLU filed suit um, contending essentially that Maryland's violating the constitutional rights of these folks, um, violating the Eighth Amendment um, in uh, in subjecting them to life without parole rather than par- parole. So let's take, let's, take, let's take a little history lesson here for a moment. Like going back to that moment with Glenn Denning, I was trying to remember it, uh, when this happened, when he did that. And um, that 
It was on the heels of somebody who had been paroled and committed a murder, or, right? right? Ex- Am I right? Exactly. One of the individuals that was in the work release and family leave program right. at the time committed a uh, tragic murder-suicide. And uh, in 1993, that this was, happened in 1993. Right, it was one of the first early shows that we did with him. I remember this. Okay, right, 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 right. right. And so everyone that was serving parole eligible life sentences that was in those in that in those programs was returned back into medium security. And this was during Schaefer's administration, while they were in the process of trying to decide who they were going to return or whether they were going to return people. Uh, back into those programs, there was a change in administration. And when former Governor Glenn Dennis came into office, he issued the mandate that life means life, that he would not consider anyone uh, serving parole eligible life sentences. For that parole. was his executive action. It wasn't a law. Right. Correct? Exactly. Exactly. Right. So there's nothing stopping the governor, if they wanted to, from paroling anybody. Right. I think except for the right. fact that the system is really um, atrophied. You know, at the time that – you know, this is now we're talking about more than two decades. At the time um, before that action was taken, um, there was a robust set of processes in place for people to gradually work their way out of the system, right? And and for, and that – I think Walter really knows a lot of the detail on that. But um, – that was really important. It was also, you know, it was everything from um, the pro- when you would, ha- you know, have a meeting with the parole commission um, five years into your sentence, and they would have a one-on-one with you where they explain in detail, you know, what they thought of your record so far and what they expected to see from you. And so there was a clear, and, and then you could sort of work your way up, work, go, get into work release, work your way through le- to lesser security levels. Um, and also get sort of detailed expectations of, um, of you know, of how you could proceed and what was holding you back. And I think um, it's fair to say that over the years, um, that system that was once really robust has really atrophied and instead become um, really all but non-existent in terms of preparing people for release because it ceased to be sort of a regular expectation. So – the, so, you, what's the what's the connection between this court case and what you're trying to do in Annapolis? I mean, what I mean, so is there, are they the same? Are they different? Is there a bridge here? What is it? Well, the court case morphed out of what we're trying to do in Annapolis. <coughs> you took them but, to court. We, we, yeah, ACLU yeah. took the state to court. Yeah, to say that. In Maryland, um, at least with respect to juveniles because of these cases at the Supreme Court, this scheme, which we have tolerated for so long, is clearly unconstitutional after these Supreme Court cases, at least for those who are kids. I think there are other arguments as well for those who are not kids at the time. Um, And so we're – the case affects one subset of lifers. uh, Which is those who are charged with life while juveniles. Exactly. Correct. That's what the case affects. But it's, the bill is broader. It's much broader, yeah. And so the, exactly. the, the class action lawsuit, again, morphed into out, – out of the overall objective is to remove uh, that one sentence in the statute that requires the governor's signature. We have been working with the ACLU for many, many, many years. And when Sonia became – or started working for the ACLU, her interest was primary on juveniles, and she had done a lot of research and a lot of work on that she was following the the science as well as court court cases, and so once the the uh, Supreme Court 
issued their final decision. Well, not the final decision. They issued the Miller and Graham. Montgomery was the final one that actually put the link pen in of uh, being able to make this case. He was able to take what had happened to all lifers, but specifically targeted toward juveniles to bring about the class action lawsuit. We still continue with our overall objective, which is to remove politics from the process. But we are able to make the best possible case by using the class action lawsuit with the juveniles. So there clearly is not a lot of popular will. Well, it's not. I mean, it's it's a tough question for many people in the public to to let people go from a life imprisonment, and I think that a lot of people, the number of people, when Glendening, Glendening made the statement, former Governor Glendening, that life means life, said, "Yeah, right. That's exactly what should happen. People who are who are who are who taking another person's life, and that's what they have to give up. Is it wrong? That's if not good- being." Executed, then okay, fine. Then spend their life behind bars. That's 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 a good observation. However, if they're not being executed, then they receive life without parole. But it is a good observation, uh, and it would be one that could may hold with some substance. <clears throat> However, in 2012, when the Maryland Court of Appeal issued what's called the Unger decision, which meant that anyone that was tried prior to 1980 by a jury trial. Uh, was entitled to a new trial. And since 2013, over 160 of these individuals have been released back into the community that were all previously serving parole-eligible life sentences because the major argument that was used to uh, argue against releasing some of these individuals is that they would be a threat to public safety and that they may not have changed. And you've worked with a lot of those men. Over yeah, a- absolutely, absolutely, right. absolutely. And since... 2013, we've had well over 160 of them that have been released back into the community. Uh, just one female was uh, in, in the group that uh, was released. And to date, we've had zero recidivism. And these individuals had reacclimated, made the transition back into society, and are doing great. They've demonstrated time and time again that they are not a threat to public safety and that, in fact, they have changed. And so our argument at this point, well, rather our advocacy at this point, is that this is what we have been saying they would do for years, and now that they're out here doing it. And statistically, it's six months, 18 months, three years, recidivism. Specifically for people who uh, have been involved in the criminal justice system to that extent. And so now we have three years, so they've been tested way beyond that point. And so our advocacy here is that there are many men and women that are still incarcerated that don't have the Unger decision that are equally entitled to meaningful consideration to be released. So let me take a step back again for a moment, just for our listeners and Sonia, the Unger decision. This was a decision made because of racial bias in juries when these men and a woman were convicted? Am I right about that? What was it? What was it? No, it wasn't necessarily racial bias. It was the instructions themselves. Instructions they, of the juries. They would say right. that Excuse they me. were entitled gotcha. to the, 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 right, the right, deciders right, of the law. Right, right. Of so, course, because we have well over 80% of the people that have been convicted with African Americans. So we could assume uh, in a larger sense that it, uh, it, it did have some type of disproportional Racial bias. So the bill that you want to see passed by the House and Senate has, I mean, it has, it has more to do with who grants this parole and how that process is done? The only thing it does is to say that the final decision should rest with the parole commission rather than the governor. 
And so nothing would have to change except that the final decision is stays with the parole commission rather than going to the governor. And I think um, there's two points I want to make. One is that the sentencing project just did a fantastic sort of national look at um, the evolution of life sentences in the U.S. And, you know, I think we often say um, life means life very cavalierly. In fact, life always meant life with parole. It meant you did 15 years um, with good behavior and you gradually worked your way out. And what we have done is um, the opposite of truth in sentencing, which is taking those life with parole sentences and turn them into sentences to die in prison. And um, I think one of the key highlights of the, you know, their the sentencing project's assessment over the last uh, of over trends has been that systems where the process has become very politicized, um, where you have a political figure making the final decision, really results in um, you know you're just not making decisions based on evidence or reason. You're making them purely for political reasons. And Maryland, in, and they actually hold out Maryland as an example of a state where this you know where there's overwhelming evidence that that has been the case. And that evidence points that as soon as the legislation passed in 2011, uh, former Governor O'Malley denied all of the 57 petitions that was before him, clearly indicating that this was a political decision and not a decision no, based on the bill passed. Well, we had legislation that was passed in 2011, uh, giving the governor, any setting governor, 180 days to make a decision on parole recommendation that comes to his desk. And shortly after the legislation became effective, Governor O'Malley denied all the petitions that was before him. And that was a clear indication that it was politically motivated. And Sonia and I had a conversation just before we came in, and she talked about the fact that uh, some folk have said that, well, let's wait and see what the next governor does, and then there may be a change. Well, we've had subsequent governors since uh, Governor Glenn Dennis made that edit. And for the most part, the process has remained the same. And so what would actually solve this, this the big problem is just to remove that one, 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 one line in the statute that requires the governor's signature. And because this would still remain a part of the executive branch's function because the governor would still appoint parole commissioners, that he would still be in a position to appoint people that reflect whatever his philosophical, ideological position may be important point here is that if an individual received a life sentence on Governor Hogan's watch, he would not even be in a position to decide whether this individual would be released or not because he's only in office for a 10-year, for eight-year period. And folk that are serving parole-eligible life sentence are traditionally not released from prison until after 15 to 20 years. So we were, we could have had conceivably two eight-year governors that were been in office that would not even be in a position to decide whether the right. individual would be but, released. Well, what do we know? I mean, all right, let's say the, let's say for argument's sake, and I want to get to the politics that's going on and where you think this bill is, and because it's been tough to get this thing passed for for a long time through several through lots of legislative sessions. Um, but what indications are there if this bill passed that the parole boards would be any more open to releasing men and women who are in prison for life after 7, 15, or 20 years than anybody else, than the governor would by, by his or herself? 
Well, the position would be this is because we know prior to Governor Glenn Dennis edit <clears throat> that people were traditionally being released on parole. And as Sonia was, 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 was pointing out, is that the system is set up that Maryland is one of the states in the union that actually have a parole expectancy built into its system, is that an individual will come into a system, in, into the, the uh, Division of Correction, serving that type of sentence and maximum security. Their behavior would indicate that they could move to medium security and then to minimum security and then work release and family leave. And these this expectancy was that once you receive... Uh, acquire that, then you could eventually be released. And I'll point to a, a, a quote from a former from a Judge Moss, and he said in one of his, his, his decisions is that hope and a longing for reward lie at the heart of every human endeavor. That is what makes the system work because incentive is, incentive is built into the process. That is the behavior mechanism that allows an individual to change if they eventually want to get released. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, it still begs the question. I'm not not saying the bill is not a good bill. I'm just saying it still begs the question of whether parole boards will let people go. I mean, that's that's a different. So, is there any indication in the other 47 states where the governor does not have this power that more people are Great paroled? Great question. In um, in uh, we were actually just talking about this sentencing project report that showed that. States um, and not blue states, red state, Georgia and Missouri, um, that were the uh, sentencing project had looked at a couple of large states as examples. Um, they regularly parole dozens of lifers a year, and um, lifers who are there for uh, first degree murder, other serious offenses. So um, I think that it is possible for a parole system to function as it is intended by the law to function. Um, and part of what the goal of this bill is to create that environment to make it possible. Um, I want to I want to get at. Uh, this question about sort of what people want, um, and uh, and I think, um, you know, people do want punishment for people who've committed serious crimes. I think to the extent that there's a question about public safety, I think the people who have come home through the Unger decision are living proof that almost I, – I, I'm actually not aware of any other scenario where that many people doing life sentences have come home. Um, so we have living proof um, that – we can safely bring these people home. Um, and many of those people were not even recommended at any point by the Parole Commission. Um, so that's an important thing, I think. But what you were getting at is that people want punishment, right? And people want eye for an eye. And I think that there is that element, but we grossly exaggerate and give that more power than it has. And I think um, when you have one-on-one -on -one conversations with survivors of serious violence, there is a lot more nuance to the position. And I think you might, uh, for example, be um, somebody who starts out very angry and wanting that, per you know, the person who took your loved one's life to die or to rot in prison. Um, but I think often what people really want is for meaning to come from loss. And, um, and what better way to have meaning than second chances and redemption. And I think that there are examples of that that just are so beneath the radar that they don't get sort of sp spoken more broadly. And and I'll just I'll, for one, one other point, I think, is that, um, you know, a, we have such extraordinary race disparities in the lifers in Maryland. Um, we lead the nation in the 
uh, in the racial disparity of our lifer population. We beat out Mississippi, Alabama. Um, and the communities bearing the brunt of the lifer policy um, are also often bearing the brunt of the violence. And I think that when we um, – what we're doing is using a cure that's worse than the disease for a lot of people. I think, you know, it's – people are losing – you know, there are people in our city where who have lost – a loved one to violence, and other loved ones to the system. And I think those people have a much more, often have a much more nuanced view of of what justice is than just, I want this person to die in prison. So a couple of things here before we round down. I want to get to the politics of this and where the system state legislature and what you think, where we think, where you think you are in terms of the votes to make this thing happen this year as a change from other years and why. But on the way there, I mean, people could look at the younger decision and other places and go, you know, well, look, these guys have been in jail for 30, 35 years, 40 years. Of course, when they come out, they're not going to do anything. You know, they, they're old. <laughs> right? I mean, uh, so, I mean, that you can hear people make that argument as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. They say that uh, people age out of crimes. Uh, well, and a, and a lot of people that are still incarcerated have spent that kind of time in prison and have aged out as well. And those are the people that we're talking about. Uh, a, a real important point is that because uh, the question that you asked is, well, what makes us think that uh, if this if, if if we were to be successful, that this would work? And the indication that it did work prior to Governor Glenn Dennis, of course, we're talking about almost a quarter of a century now. Right, so right. naturally things has changed. New people have assumed various positions. In fact, a lot of the legislators that are currently in, uh, uh, elected officials weren't even uh, uh, you know, elected officials at that time. And so it's an educational process as well. And then we have to clearly make the distinction between life without parole and life with parole and the fact that these people statutorily are eligible for a meaningful consideration to be released. And so at the, the position that I think we, 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 we have come to over time is that we've looked at the system, how it worked prior to the life, the, the, the uh, mandate from Governor uh, Glenn Dennis, and we've seen how it has worked under uh, those policies for the, uh, almost uh, a quarter of a century. Now, of course, we we don't necessarily believe that it would revert it back to exactly how it worked before, but this would at least give us and the men and women that are incarcerated a meaningful opportunity to be released because the system that we, would be in place that would allow them to progress through the system. And our, our, I suppose our most supporting uh, piece of evidence of that is that this over 160 people that have been released since 2013 were the same people that they were talking about, that if they were to be released, that they would be a threat to public safety and that they could not safely be released back into the community. And yet they've demonstrated that. So so where are we politically with this at the moment? Where, where do you see... Well, I want to. I I actually want to go back to the court case for a minute because okay. I think that that actually sheds light on it. So, um, the so we filed this lawsuit last year arguing that Maryland's system is um, broken to the point that it it denies um, lifers a meaningful opportunity for release, and that violates the Eighth Amendment. Um, the state moved to dismiss the case, saying our arguments had no legal merit. There's no, you know, there. They just didn't apply. They weren't applicable. Um, last week – and there was a hearing earlier in January and last Friday, the um, the it was – it's in federal court. The federal judge issued a really thoughtful opinion laying out 
um, that the, sort of rejecting the state's claims um, and saying, yeah, the, the plaintiffs here, the lifers, the juvenile lifers have made out a plausible claim that we, the state of Maryland, is violating their constitutional rights by failing to live up to this promise, right? And I think that um, that is a court decision, but it also reflects – it goes to the politics because it also reflects that our um, – the landscape is changing. The landscape is changing in terms of our what we as a society say is ac- acceptable. And I think we – you know, it's – you can't read the judge's opinion and not think that Maryland has to change something to avoid being in violation of the law first. Um, but secondly, I think that there has been a growing bipartisan um, sort of national movement around – recognizing, you know, that we we have to confront our, our sort of scheme of mass incarceration and and um, and that does feel different. So 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 the, the, the time we have left, we're running out of time here, so I want to make sure we get this out. So I'm curious for the political question, where is the stand? Um, what do you think the chances are, given the politics of our state? And finally, um, if you want people to be in touch around this bill, what do they talk about in one of the bills? So let's get through that. Yeah. Well, what we've prepared, first off, we we, we have gained uh, far more additional sponsors on the House as well as the Senate. Uh, we've also put together a very detailed fact sheet on the outline of when this started and what has occurred since it has started. And we've also put together some talking points. Uh and we're very optimistic. Mom. I think th- this is. I think this is a real. This is a question. This is a time when anyone who supports this effort should come out, come to Annapolis, get in touch with MRJI or the ACLU, contact your legislators, tell them you want them to pass HB seven twenty three, um, and in the Senate version it is SB six ninety four. I believe. Yes. Um, if you don't know who your legislators are, uh, we will help you figure out who they are. Um, the first hearing is next. Tuesday on Valentine's Day. Um, so join us for um, hopefully some love in Annapolis. Um, but um, but it is absolutely the case. This is you know this is one where I think um, it, when this passes, it will be because people stood up and said this is the right thing to do. This is what we want, and so we really really need people to turn out. We're going to have a rally um, that Walter's organizing um, in Annapolis, um, and the first hearing next Tuesday. So how do they contact the organizations? Uh, you can contact the um, Maryland Restorative Justice Initiative by Walter, W-A-L-T-E-R, Mandela, M-A-N-D-A-L-A, Lomax, L-O-M-A-X, at hotmail.com, or 443-413-6076. To contact us at the ACLU, just go to our website, www aclu-md.org and you can sign up for emails um, and or reach out and call our main line and ask for me if you want to support the bill. And what's the number? 410-889-8555. And ask for Sonia Kumar. Ask for me. K-U-M-A-R. It's good to have you both in the studio. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Sonia Kumar, good to have you in the studio and uh, good luck with this. We'll follow up, uh, at least let's follow up by emailing it on the air if we need to for next week and see how the things have gone. That would be great. Keep following it. Right. The House bill is being heard Tuesday, but the Senate bill hasn't come up for a hearing yet, so uh, we could come back between. We can. We can. So we've been here with Sonia Kumar, staff attorney for the ACLU of Maryland, and Walter Lomax, executive director 
of the Maryland Restorative Justice Initiative. Thank you both so much.